Welcome to another quarantine episode of Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. So let's start tonight by talking about how our brains process words, at least written words. Neuroscientists have identified a region of the brain which allows humans to distinguish real words from nonsense. This region is called the mid-fusiform cortex and is part of the temporal lobe, which makes sense as this is the area of the brain which is known for processing sensory information. The researchers believe that this area is where human story, where humans store their visual dictionary, which in turn helps us to understand the difference between real words and words that are simply a jumble of random letters. The researchers believe that this could lead to a greater understanding of how some people can read faster than others and even into the mechanisms of dyslexia. How much the mid-fusiform responds to a word and how quickly it can distinguish between a real and a made-up word is highly dependent on how frequently the real world is the real word is encountered in everyday language, says neurosurgeon Nitin Tandon from the University of Texas. So short, common words like say can be identified quickly, but long, infrequent words like murmurings take longer to be identified as real words. Now, the team examined brain scans from 35 epileptic patients. And so these participants were chosen because they already had electrodes fitted into their brain uh, in order for them to get treatment for their epilepsy. And so what they did was they asked the participants to look at real words, nonsense words, and even words in a created font that didn't actually look like uh, real letters. They looked more like elfish or something like that. <laughs> and so looking at the brainwave patterns, they found that the mid-fusiform region reacts first to compare what is being read to a database of known words. Once a match has been made, the information is then sent on to other parts of the brain for processing, or for further processing. The team applied short electrical stimulations to briefly halt the ability of the mid-fusiform and found that it temporarily prevented the subject from being able to perceive the meaning of the words they were viewing. We showed that if we temporarily disrupt the activity in the mid-fusiform cortex using briefly applied electrical pulses, it causes a temporary inability to read, a dyslexia, but doesn't disrupt other language functions like naming visual objects or understanding speech, says Tandon. Knowing more about this process could help researchers to develop new and novel ways to combat dyslexia and other disorders that prevent the brain from registering words correctly. The mid-fusiform is able to quickly identify and pass on common words, but again takes longer to process less familiar words, and so it then passes them on to other parts of the brain that process sentence structure and meaning. 
Since word frequency is one of the main factors that determines how fast people can read, it is likely that the mid-fusiform acts as the bottleneck to reading speed, said Tandon. Now, it may also lead to a better understanding of other uh, forms of oddity that are part of the brain and how it produces uh, and how it recognizes the written word. So for instance, uh, some people can read words even if the central letters are mixed up as long as the first and last letter are correct. Now I have that ability and I actually sometimes find it a pain because it makes it harder to find spelling mistakes, especially if they've been missed by the spell checker when you actually end up having an automatic self spell checker in your brain. Um, so it can actually be kind of annoying sometimes, actually. Okay, so now we're going to move on, and we're actually going to talk about dogs and word recognition. And so this is going to be auditory recognition. New research suggests that dogs are only able to process words at the same cognitive level as an infant. A new study by Hungarian researchers of the MTA ELTE Mendelet Neuroethology of Communication Research Group at the Etwuschlerand University in Budapest measured brain activity using electroencephalography or EEGs on dogs who listened to a series of words and sounds. Now, EEG is the non-evasive version of measuring brain waves. I actually had an EEG earlier this week as part of a sleep study. The only problem for me was that the paste they used to adhere the electrodes, are it's very hard to get out of your hair. It took several tries. <laughs> and so the study, published in the Royal Society Open Science, notes that dogs can distinguish human speech sounds, processing these ways in a way, these sounds in a way that is similar to humans. However, we know that most dogs only learn a few words, even as they sit around and absorb human speech throughout their lives. Lilia Magyari, a postdoctoral researcher in the Department of Ethology, and her colleagues hypothesized that even though dogs can hear most of what we're saying, they are unable to process it in a way that allows for complex differentiations of words. Specifically, they wondered if dogs weren't paying equal attention, cognitively, to all parts of a word. The researchers therefore decided to test untrained family dogs, and so they were invited with their owners to come to the lab. They allowed the dogs to get familiar with their surroundings and then had them sit on a mattress together as if resting so that the dogs would feel comfortable. Master and dog together, that is. They then had the dogs listen to tape-recorded instruction words they knew, such as sit, and also to similar but nonsense words such as sut, and to other more odd words such as bet. The researchers found that the dogs were readily able to distinguish between sit and bep, with a latency around 200 milliseconds after the beginning of the words, which is a similar result to that of humans. But crucially, they found that the dogs did not distinguish at all 
between known and nonsense words that differed in only a single speech sound. So if only one letter is different, they are unable to differentiate. This suggests that they align with the cognitive capabilities of around a 14-month-old. Phonetic details begin to develop for infants between 14 and 20 months. Similarly to the case of human infants, we speculate that the similarity of dogs' brains' activity for instruction words they know and for similar nonsense words reflect not perceptual constraints, but attentional and processing biases. Dogs might not attend to all details of speech sound when they listen to words. Further research could reveal whether this could be a reason that incapacitates dogs from acquiring a sizable vocabulary, concludes Attila Andix, principal investigator of the research group. So that is really interesting. Now, I know that a lot of dogs that seem to have pretty big vocabularies, but the words are generally pretty different. So if your commands all sound very different, then that would not be, uh, that would not be intervened with by this idea. So if you say sit and paw, those are very different. Um, and so I don't, I can't think of any, uh, of any commands offhand that are very similar to one another. So I think that that's why dogs can have a reasonably large vocabulary of commands and things that they know, but that it's not the um, complete and utter set of recognition and they're not able to distinguish uh, everything that humans are saying. And of course, they'll never be able to talk to us because they don't have the kind of uh, larynx and voice box that we have. So unfortunately, unless we get some sort of uh, up-style dog collar that can translate their brain uh, waves, we're unfortunately never going to know what they're thinking uh, in terms of speech. Sigh. I would love to know what goes on in the brains of dogs, personally. I think that would be fantastic if we could uh, create a translator <laughs> in order to do that. Okay, so we're going to switch gears now a little bit, um, and we are going to talk about a different kind of symbolic representation, and this is ancient rock art. And so recently discovered was an eight-mile-long rock face covered in Ice Age art found in the Amazon rainforest. The amazing art was drawn using ochre, a staple of ancient civilizations across the world. So it's a red pigment, sort of a um, brick-red pigment. And so the rock face is located on the hills above three rock shelters in uh, what is present-day Colombia. These really are incredible images produced by the earliest people to live in Western Amazonia, study co-author, sorry, study co-researcher Mark Robinson, an archaeologist at the University of Exeter who analyzed the rocks, the rock art alongside Colombian scientists said in a statement. Now, the paintings come from the archaeological site of Serrania La Lindosa, 
on the northern edge of the Colombian Amazon, and they would have been created at the end of the last ice age, sometime between 12,600 and 11,800 years ago. At the time, the Amazon was actually still transforming from a landscape dominated by savannas, thorny scrub, and forests into today's tropical forest. And it turns out that a lot of that was helped out by humans. Um, and so, of course, we used to think that the tropical forest just kind of dropped in there uh, and then humans adapted to it. But we found over the years that humans also actually helped cultivate um, a lot of the land there and made it rich in a way that it hadn't been before. And so the painting includes handprints, geometric designs, and a large array of animals. Familiar animals such as deer, tapirs, alligators, bats, monkeys, turtles, snakes, and porcupines are found, and they also depict large Pleistocene animals such as camelids, horses, and three-toed hoofed animals with trunks. Um, I've seen some recreated pictures of those, and they look pretty funny. <laughs> also included are hunting scenes, as well as humans interacting with plants, trees, and savanna creatures. Now, this is the second such rock art to be found in the Amazon, as there is also a site that's been found in central Brazil. But this site's extensive drawings shed more light on what some of the extinct species would have looked like. This is like, literally, it's just a huge amount of uh, drawings. The pictures are just amazing. Uh, there's one bit of the rock that just looks like it's just, it looks almost like a book. Like they were just writing along in lines symbolically. Uh, it's really fascinating. The paintings give a vivid and exciting glimpse into the lives of these communities, Robinson said. It is unbelievable to us today to think that they lived among and hunted giant herbivores, some of which were the size of a small car. Now, they also found that the rock shelters housed some of the earliest human-occupied sites in the Amazon. The paintings and remains found in the camps gave researchers an insight into the diet of these ancient people. They found traces of palm and tree fruits, piranhas, alligators, snakes, frogs, paca, capybara, and armadillos. Taking down a capybara is probably slightly hard. They're not very uh, aggressive, though, from what I have ever noticed of them, um, at least in zoos, but they are pretty big. Now, the camps were excavated in 2017-2018 after the Colombian government signed a peace treaty with the guerrilla group FARC. Once hostilities ended, the researchers embarked upon a project called Last Journey, which aims to find out when people first settled in the Amazon region and how they impacted the, the environment with farming and hunting. These rock paintings are spectacular evidence of how humans reconstructed the land and how they hunted, farmed, and fished, study co-researcher Jose Ariate, an archaeologist at the University of Ex Exeter, said in a statement. 
it is likely art was a powerful part of culture and a way for people to connect socially. Okay, so now we are actually going to move a bit to the southeast and a significant amount of time uh, ahead, uh, or ahead in time, I should say. So now we're actually going to move on and talk about the discovery of a network of small villages dating from 1300 to 1700 in the Brazilian Amazon. Now the villages were discovered using the uh, fabulous tool uh, LIDAR, which if you are new to the program is pretty much the best thing that's happened to archaeology in the last like 200 years, maybe. Um, some other tools might also be uh, as as useful. Uh, certainly, uh, radiometric dating is up there, but uh, LIDAR definitely in the last 20 years is the best thing that's happened to archaeology. And so uh, just as a recap of LIDAR, what it is, is it's a device that basically beams thousands of individual laser beams down onto a landscape that usually you um, are in a helicopter or a plane when you're using a LIDAR. And so you go over over countryside and what the LIDAR can do is it goes right through vegeta vegetation. And so it basically strips off the vegetation and gives you a view of what's on the ground underneath all of the vegetation, which in the Amazon is huge. And in other tropical regions, especially, it's really, really uh, been a game changing tool. It's really allowed us to find a lot of um, settlements that we had sort of thought might be out there, but it's vast, dense jungle, and there's no way to find them when you're on the ground without this kind of remarkable new tool, unless you literally just stumble upon them, um, or unless you do something crazy like ask people who live there, but that's another story for another day. <laughs> and so... We're going to talk about the discovery of a network of small villages dating from 1300 to 1700. Um, sorry. Uh, the villages are either round or rectangular, with the round villages all having similar footprints with elongated mounds circling a central plaza somewhat like a watch face. These latter elongated mounds when seen from above, look like the rays of, of the sun, which gives them the common name of sois, the Portuguese word for suns, the researchers wrote in the study. The discovery is part of a new archaeological focus on the pre-Columbian Amazon. Over the last 20 years, researchers have discovered a wealth of archaeological remains on the southern rim of the Amazon, including soil sculpting cultures that shaped the landscape long before Europeans arrived. They were highly advanced. There were highly advanced and indigenous settlements that have long been uh, swallowed up and forgotten, as we mentioned. But they had not yet surveyed the Brazilian state of Acre. And so a LIDAR survey, survey combined with satellite data rediscovered 25 circular mound villages and 11 rectangular mound villages. Another 15 were too poorly preserved in order to be able to categorize as either circular or rectangular. 
The circular villages had an average diameter of 282 feet, with the rectangular villages averaging just 148 feet in length. The circular quote-unquote sun villages had carefully planned roads, with each mound village having two principal roads that were wide and deep with high banks up to 20 feet across and smaller minor roads leading to nearby streams. The villages were local to one another, and most were just around three miles apart. Many of the roads led to other villages. The indigenous people may have been modeling their dwellings to represent the cosmos. And so the intricate road system, however, is hardly a surprise for Amazonian archaeologists, the researchers wrote in the study. Early historical accounts attest to the ubiquity of road networks across the Amazon. They are mentioned since the 6th century account of the Spanish-Dominican missionary Friar Gaspar de Carvajal, who observed wide roads leading from the riverine villages to the interior. Later, in the 18th century, Colonel Antonio Perez de Campos described a vast population inhabiting the region, with villages connected by straight, wide roads that were constantly kept clean, the researchers added. Now, little is known of the people who made these villages. Pottery found so far seems to be actually cruder than the uh, geoglyph people who lived in the region from around 400 BCE to 950 CE. Now, interestingly, a documentary is being released sometime this month in the UK, featuring more information about both of these findings. And so hopefully that'll be available for viewing sometime after that, because I think it would be really interesting to be able to see visually um, a lot of this stuff more um, in depth. Okay, so now we are going to move uh, north. And we are going to talk about another set of very clever uh, indigenous ancestral people. All right, so new research suggests that ancient Puebloan people survived droughts by harvesting ice trapped in deep lava tubes that dot western New Mexico. Charcoal embedded in ice cores from a lava tube cave show that such droughts that during droughts, uh, melting took place six times over 800 years. And so charcoal from around 150 CE shows the earliest ev evidence that ancestral Puebloans used fire to melt the ice, which was trapped in the deep dark of the lava tube caves. And so it shows just how far they were willing to go to be able to survive in what is still today a very harsh environment. This study demonstrates with ingenuity, the ingenuity of indigenous people who use the area, said Barbara Mills, an anthropological archaeologist at the University of Arizona in Tucson, who was not involved in the study. It also shows how centuries, it also shows the knowledge about the trails, caves, and harvesting practices was passed down over many centuries, even millennia. And so these are actually the, uh, ancestral people who built Mesa Verde. So they were no strangers to uh, doing pretty impressive uh, feats of engineering and uh, daring do. 
And so they actually lived in the arid Southwest for over 10,000 years. Uh, so they were not, uh, they were not bad at figuring out how to make it work in this area. And of course, part, a big part of that is being clever about finding water. And so in April 2017, a team led by paleoclimatologist Bogdan Onak of the University of South Florida in Tampa traveled to El Malpais National Monument in New Mexico to collect ice cores from lava tube caves for ancient climate data. Now, the caves maintain a temperature of around 32 degrees Fahrenheit and thus are usually ice-bearing. Due to the cylindrical shape of the tubes, cooler air sinks and warmer air is pushed up and out, maintaining that nice refrigerated uh, temperature at the bottom of the tubes. And so the team initially planned on only extracting paleoclimate data from the ice. But when they reached Cave 29, they found a surprise. The interior of the tube was covered with charcoal deposits, concentrated around what was once a roughly a thousand square meter block of ice. The team was able to extract an ice core that was around just under two feet from the remains of the block and observed five distinct black bands along its length. The charcoal indicated fire and fire this far down in an icy cave suggested human activity. Even better, the position of the charcoal in the ice allowed the researchers to date the periods of human activity. When we got the core out and we saw the charcoal, obviously we were just jumping all over because that meant we could have a chronology, Anak says. After melting the core down, they, they radiocarbon dated the charcoal, finding dates ranging from 150 CE to 950 CE. And they found that these dates corresponded to drought events recorded in tree rings from the surrounding landscape. The correlation of the radiocarbon dates with periods of drought is remarkable, Mills said. Until now, the only evidence that the ancestral prevalence had used the ice caves was circumstantial, with road networks crisscrossing the area and pottery pieces and charcoal having been found in and around the cave entrances. A charcoal-coated shard of pottery dated to 1097 offered further proof of human activity. Unfortunately, the ice is rapidly melting due to climate change, with just under a foot having melted since the 1980s, which represents potentially hundreds of years of lost data. All right, so we are now going to take a break, and then we will come back after some show promos and some PSAs, and we are going to stay in the Southwest for one more uh, story, and then we're going to move on to other things. But you should definitely stay tuned. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, Women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. 
Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in the CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's Subculture Music Program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7 here on Valley Free Radio or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. And we are back. You are, once again, listening to Evidence-Based Radio. So again, we're going to stay in the general area of the Southwest, and we're going to talk about a study which suggests that early people were practicing hospice care for loved ones who were dying. And so basically, they were caring for their loved ones in a way that shows that there was a real sort of community and familial spirit. And so between 1,000 and 1,400 years ago, a man in the Rio Grande area was suffering. He had an impacted bowel due to the parasite-carried Chagas disease. And so his colon would have actually swelled to six times its normal diameter, and the food buildup was so bad that he was beginning to actually have it press against his spine. The last two to three months of this man, who lived in what is now the local, the lower Pecos Canyonland of Texas, the last two or three years of his uh, life 
was spent starving as he could no longer properly process food. And so what happened was that his family would have started to take care of him. And so his final meals consisted entirely of a food that his people rarely relied on, grasshoppers. But his family, or his community, took the effort to pluck the extraneous bits from the insects before feeding them to him. They were taking off the legs, said Carl Reinhardt, a professor in the School of Natural Resources at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. So they were giving him mostly the fluid-rich body, the squishable part of the grasshopper. In addition to being high in protein, it was pretty high in moisture, so it would have been easier for him to eat in the early stages of his megacolon experience. And so this is the so-called Skiles mummy, and it is one of three case studies that Reinhardt is looking at for his for a chapter in the forthcoming book, the hand, the handbook of, of mummy studies. The mummy's intestinal contents were first analyzed around 30 years ago, but advances in microscopy and a host of other related technologies have allowed Reinhardt to review the cases. For the Skiles mummy, Julia Russ at Unibraska used scanning electron microscopy to analyze phytoliths, minuscule structures in plant tissue that remain even after the plant has decayed otherwise. Phytoliths usually survive the trip through the human digestive tract intact, which is why the researchers were confused by what they saw when they actually looked at the mummy. The phytoliths were split open, crushed, and that means that there was incredible pressure that was exerted on a microscopic level in this guy's intestinal system, which highlights even more the pathology that was exhibited here, Reinhardt said. I think this is unique in the animal in the annals of pathology, this level of intestinal blockage and the pressure that's associated with it. Now, Reinhardt's field is actually in identifying pollen, which proved useful in another case, that of a partially mummified Hohokam child buried between 500 and 1,000 years ago in present-day Arizona's Ventana Cave. And so fruit from the saguaro cactus has been known to be a staple in the area and has been known to have been a staple of the Hohokam, for instance. And so the thing, though, about this was that the pollen and phytoliths from the remains showed that the child had been eating the flowers of the cactus, as many as 230 of them in the weeks before he passed, between the age of five or six. Given that the pollen was relatively fresh, the child must have died during the saguaro's flowering season, likely between mid-May and early July. The saguaro is such a sacred plant that the use of it smacks of ceremony with regards to this mummified child, he said. In addition, gathering the flowers would have been a chore for the community or family. 
saguaros can grow to over 40 feet tall, have more than 40 needle, and have more than 40 needle-covered arms, and the flowers tend to be toward the top of the cactus. It's harder than hell to get the flowers off, said Reinhardt, who speaks from experience, from having struggled to do just that, while precariously perched atop a ladder back where he lived in Tucson. Finally, Mom came out and said, Hey, Carl, why don't you go to the little saguaro instead? <laughs> and so uh, the third mummy is that of a young child buried around 750 years ago in southern Utah by the Pueblo people. And so this mummy really exemplifies the lengths to which a community might go to try and keep a loved one alive. The Pueblo generally ate a varied diet, but this child was being fed exclusively rice grass. In fact, a nutritious variety called Acnotherum hymoniides. And so gathering the rice grass, take, rice grass takes time, and it doesn't yield a great harvest. One hour of harvesting would yield just around 400 calories worth of grain, but this might have been the best choice to try and keep the child alive in early summer when other sources of food were actually fairly scarce. We've never seen that specified concentration of one food, one kind of food in the more than 600 intestinal samples Reinhardt has analyzed from 15 sites on the Colorado Plateau. This type of food is abundant when there's no other kind of food available, but it takes a lot of effort to get it prepared for an individual. We can look at the experimental archaeology that shows us how difficult it is to collect those seeds. Then we can interpret that there were a lot of people helping this child survive. Now, Reinhardt's greater goal is to carefully analyze the scientific data in order to be able to make informed and plausible conclusions about the cultural practices of the peoples he studies. The book is in part a handbook to help others to examine pollen and other intestinal materials in the same manner to make their own informed conclusions, and other chapters will also have that kind of information. And so not only is this showing really interesting new information, it's also giving us the tools for researchers to go out and find this information about others, which I think is very cool. Um, and so I really uh, am excited to learn more about more uh, ancient remains. All right, we are going to switch from... Uh, archaeology to paleontology, and we're going to talk about pterosaurs. Now, surprisingly, despite them being very well known and extremely successful, little has actually been discovered about the evolutionary development of the first pterosaurs. They just kind of pop into the scene in the uh, fossil record, because of course, as we all know, the fossil record, despite having a lot in it, um, is also quite, quite incomplete. And so there is a lot of uh, fossils out there that either haven't been discovered or just don't exist. Um, because creating fossils is actually fairly hard, a lot harder than most people think it is. And so um, we don't, we just don't have the fossils. But 
we do know that we, but we have fossils and they can be re-examined and new information can be pulled from them, just like in the previous story. And so obviously pterosaurs were the first vertebrate to evolve powered flight and they burst onto the scene around 150 million years ago and survived until the uh, KPG or Cretaceous Paleogene Extinction Event, extinction event caused by the Chicxulub meteor impact around 66 million years ago. So again, uh, dinosaurs, pterosaurs, other um, animals from this time period, they were on the earth for a really long time. Uh, so they were pretty darn successful from an evolutionary uh, point of view and might even still be here today in varied evolved forms like birds had the impact not uh, devastated them. And so a new examination of fossils found in North America, Brazil, Argentina, and Madagascar suggest that they evolved from Lagerpedids, a group of small reptiles that lived during the Triassic period, between 237 and 210 million years ago. They were most likely less than three feet in length, and paleontologists aren't sure, actually, if they walked on two legs or four legs. Now, the new study posits that their claws were most likely used for activities other than locomotion on land instead being used to catch prey or climb. They had long, thin legs and were most likely insectivores. Only six species are known, two from Argentina, two from the U.S., and four others from Brazil and Madagascar. Now, loggerpedids were not dinosaurs. They had hip and ankle morphology that was not characteristic of dinosaurs. And so, because they didn't initially seem like a particularly good match for a pterosaur ancestor, they'd mostly been ignored until now. And so uh, recent analyses of, lager of lagerpedids had suggested they might need to be re-examined for this role. And so an international team led by Ezkura of lagerped, lagerpedid skeletons from uh several decades of excavations led to the discovery of at least 33 traits suggesting that they are indeed the ancestors of pterosaurs. This study is a result of an international effort applying both traditional and cutting-edge techniques, Esker wrote. This is an example of how modern science can shed light on long-standing questions that haunted paleontologists during more than a century. They found examples such as the shape of the inner ear, a pronounced bulge in, at the back of the brain called the flocus, teeth with three cusps, elongated hand bones, a small pelvis, and fused ankle bones. The most diagnostic traits, however, were cranial characteristics, which suggest agility and an advanced sense of equilibrium, which would be needed for the development of powered flight. Using microcomputed tomography scans, we were able to digitally reconstruct the brain and inner ear of lagerpedids using the brain cases of Dermamoran, Gregori, and 
Excel, Excel, sorry, Excelerpatin Brasiliensis, said Escurza. The inner ear had a region that is formed by three canals arranged in three different planes, and studies on living animals show that canals with a higher degree of curvature occur in agile animals with a good sense of equilibrium. This curved feature is found both in lagerpedids and pterosaurs, and via convergent evolution, birds, who would have evolved, who would evolve millions of years later from the dinosaur lineage. Similarly, the brains had a region called flocculus, which plays an important role in the processing of sensorial information, said Iskura. Previous studies have indicated that the large-sized flocculus of pterosaurs was probably related to flight, but we detected an initial stage of flocular enlargement in lagerpedids. Thus, these neuroatomical modifications appeared before the origin of flight and were probably later exploited by pterosaurs and allowed them to conquer the skies. Now, of course, there's still a lot of work to be done to truly find out what the connections are between these small terrestrial reptiles and the flying reptiles that later emerge. Part of this is due to the lack of complete skeletons of lagerpedids, making parts of their anatomy still a mystery and leaving gaps in our knowledge of how they may have behaved and ultimately evolved. And so we can only hope that someday a diagnostic fossil will emerge the way that Archaeopteryx emerged to connect dinosaurs to birds. Still, as Kerr feels that the new study offers a quote, significant contribution to the understanding of the tree of life, but also a step forward towards a comprehensive knowledge of the interrelationships among fossil reptiles that will allow us to understand changes in diversity in the deep time and evolutionary processes that require millions of years to occur. And so one of the really cool things about that is uh, that that issue of convergent evolution. And so what's really cool, I think, about this is that not only do you have these little lizards that may or may not have become pterosaurs, but pterosaurs and birds have these same adaptive, um, have these same adaptations in order to have the kind of ability and uh, agility in order to have powered flight and in order to be good at, um, you know, being able to achieve that. And so I think I always love convergent evolution. I think it's one of the coolest uh, parts of evolution in general is that you can have two completely different species with different evolutionary um, paths and they can be able to be... Um, when they are able to come to the same kind of conclusion is so cool. Um, I think that that is just fantastic. Um, and so 
it's really cool to be able to track these sorts of things because I think it shows the power of evolution. And so, you know, there's still people who talk about how, oh, evolution isn't true. And it's like, of course it's true. Look at this amazing thing that happened where these two different animals that developed years apart, hundreds of thousands of years apart, millions of years apart, both found the same solution to a problem. And so, yeah, I just think convergent evolution is very, very cool. All right, let us move on now to wrap up with some good news from the animal world. We could all use some good news. Uh, <laughs> and so while we've been focused on the COVID-19 crisis, uh, by the way, please remember that we need to be more vigilant now than ever about masks and social distancing, despite the talk of vaccines. Uh, but there is another pandemic that some of you might know about. Uh, Tasmanian devils have been decimated by a face tumor, facial tumor disease, which is actually a kind of transmissible cancer. And so in a species that's known for aggression, transmission rates have been very high. But new research suggests that all hope is not lost, and while the devils might not bounce back as robustly as they once were, it will not lead to an extinction as previously feared. This is according to a team of researchers led by Washington State University biologist Andrew Storfer. The team employed Phylodynamics, a genomic toolset using usually deployed to track viruses such as SARS-CoV-2. And so, um, and influenza and other viruses like that. And so they were able to change this up to track the progress of the cancer. The research indicates that the disease is shifting from being highly contagious and emerging to being endemic, a disease that spreads, spread has been slowed to the point where an infected animal will only infect one or fewer other animals. It is cautiously optimistic good news, says Storfer. I think we're going to see continued survival of the devils at lower numbers and densities than original population sizes, but extinction seems really unlikely, even though it was predicted a decade ago. The cancer was first detected in 1996 and since then has reduced the population of these adorable but frankly feisty marsupials by 80%. So yeah, it's, it's bad. And so as noted, the disease is communicable, transmitted from one devil to another, especially when fighting, which unfortunately they do a lot of. And so while the disease still carries a very high mortality rate, it appears to be reaching an equilibrium point. The study confirms research from previous field studies, which also found that the transmission rate had fallen precipitously. Now, the authors suggest that this may require a shift in management practices. Captive bred devils have been released into the wild, but this may actually make things worse. Active management may not be necessary and could actually be harmful, Storfer said. It looks like the devil populations are naturally evolving to tolerate and possibly even resist the cancer. By introducing a whole bunch of genetically naive individuals, they could breed with the wild individuals, basically mix up the gene pool and make it less well adapted. And so previous to this study, researchers had relied on field studies and modeling to understand the disease's spread. 
Phylogynamics uses genetic sequencing to trace the evolutionary relationship between different strains of a pathogen in order to trace and predict how a disease spreads across a population. Viruses with a relatively fast mutation rate are trackable using this tool. So things like uh, coronaviruses, which have a relatively high rate of mutation. Now, of course, we hear mutation and we think that's bad, right? Sometimes mutations are completely uh, are completely neutral. Sometimes they're benign. They're not always bad. It just means that some of the nucleotides changed. That's all it means. And in fact, sometimes you can have a nucleotide change and it still codes for the same exact um, base pair. So it's fine. Um, or for the same exact protein. So you're, it doesn't always mean bad. But in this case, it means trackable. Now, the, the Tasmanian devil facial tumor disease is quite a bit more complex than a virus. The disease, being a type of cancer, is derived from the animal's own cells. And so the genes being traced are among the thousands that make up the genome of the animal. The researchers ultimately screened more than 11,000 genes from tumor samples and found that those changed, found those that changed in a quote, clock-like manner, tracking mutations that accumulated rapidly. They identified 28 genes from over 430,000 base pairs, which comprised the target changes. To put that in perspective, the virus which causes COVID-19 has only 29,000 base pairs. And so in order to make this breakthrough discovery, Stouffer credits his doctoral student, Austin Patton, a recent WSU PhD graduate who is now a postdoctoral fellow at the University of California, Berkeley. One of the most exciting advances this study presents is the opportunity to apply these types of approaches to virtually any pathogen, says Patton. It opens the door to using the kind of methods that have been shown to be so important in the study of viruses to a whole new suite of pathogens that impact humans as well as wildlife. Because, of course, as you probably know, we also have cancers that are caused by viruses and are caused by um, other factors that are communicable. And so to be able to trace a cancer's changes over time could be huge. Um, anything that lets us know more about cancer is always going to be huge because it always offers the potential for us to be able to learn more about it and therefore potentially be able to combat it. And so that is very exciting news. And so, yeah, and Tasmanian devils are adorable, so we need to try and find ways to protect them. It's just, it's very important. They're very cute, um, and they're very less cute when they have this um, face tumor disease. And so it's very hard to think of a world without Tasmanian devils. And of course, we still have to think about a world without a lot of things these days. Um, and so not to, uh, be too preachy at the end of a, um, show, but, uh, anything that we can do 
to preserve wildlife and especially really amazing creatures. Yes, I said it. Um, sometimes we are better at preserving the cute creatures rather than the uncute creatures. And we need to work on that too. Um, definitely. But I think we all need to continue to be, uh, concerned about the environment and not let things like COVID-19 distract us completely from our other concerns, um, and our other interests in preserving, uh, life on the planet, not just ours. Okay. That is all the time we have for tonight. Please do stay tuned and I will be back next week with another episode of Evidence-Based Radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.